I'm glad you're here. A year ago at this time, it was just a cave. Um, we did it virtually, and you weren't here. It was just a few of us. And I can tell you honestly, at that time, I felt as unworthy of doing what we were doing as I feel tonight. There's a sense around Easter time with Good Friday and with Easter that anybody who opens God's Word and has to present it to God's people has a sense of utter unworthiness and unqualified to do what we're about to do. Because we speak of things that go so far beyond human comprehension that Jesus on the cross would have to cry out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Except he said it so loudly that everybody heard him when he cried out, my God, my God. And it's not as though he didn't see it coming. I said that to you last weekend. It's, it's not like it was a surprise to him. He knew that moment was coming. And he'd been telling his disciples for a long time. Let me put an example for you up on the screen of that. Look with me at Mark chapter 9. The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask. I can understand that. You wouldn't want to be in the stupid group. Like, Jesus, we don't get it. And have him, you know, like do the Peter thing. Peter, are you so dull? You don't get it. But I think there's more going on there in their fear of asking him. Some, some things you don't want to know. Some things you don't want to understand because it's so horrible. And I can see why they didn't want to go there. But now fully God, fully man, he's staring into the abyss and he's about to be arrested. And we left off last weekend on Palm Sunday with him in the garden. And he's begging God, if it's possible, to take this cup away from him. And I told you, it's not the prospect of having the Roman whip shredding his body it's not the prospect of the, corn, the thorn of crowns. It, it's not the mockery. It's the abandonment. It's the reason why he had to call out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. It, it's that issue. That's what's pressing him and causing him to sweat the great drops of blood. And so we find ourselves in this moment the unparalleled torture of what is about to happen to him that's causing his skin to open up and the blood to flow is the reality that he's about to become sin. And that unparalleled torture is what's causing him to cry out to God the Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
Amen? Amen, church. So this one who's never known sin is about to become the curse. Over this last week, especially since I shared what I did last week, and you can imagine the notes and the phone calls I got and text messages and people wanting to understand more, one came to me saying, how long did he deal with this agony? Was it the entire time from the moment on the cross to the moment he was resurrected? Another one trying to understand why it had to be so brutal. Why did he have to go through this kind of agony? And if you will bear with me and hang on, we're going to address that over the next weeks coming up. Those very issues, they, they deserve a fair treatment. Why? Why did it have to be like that? Know this. He suffered a death like no one has ever suffered before. And I don't just mean physically. No one ever had to face what Jesus had to face. No one goes to their death knowing that God has turned his back and that you become the curse of the world for the sake of the entire world. So no one ever died like Jesus died. Jonathan Edwards, who's a long since past theologian and pastor, died around 1753. In 1750, he said, if just a glimpse of the cross caused Jesus' skin to open up and allow blood to pour forth, what was the experience actually like? What was it like for him to actually be hanging there if just a glimpse put him into shock? With those thoughts in mind, go back to the verse you looked at a moment ago during the video of Matthew 26, 36. I'm, by the way, I'm, I'm doing all this to set up communion for you. We're, we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. It says this in Matthew 26, 36, Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And if you grab the notes this last weekend, there were those two Greek words that came out of that that described this distressing thing that he's talking about. And you just need to understand that it's a loathing that's going on. And he actually said to the guys who were with him, James and John and Peter, I feel like I'm going to die. My soul is distressed to the point of death, and Jesus was not given to exaggeration. So he really understands this is going to take my life, and it might take it even sooner. So Jesus, who's not prone to exaggeration, says, this is what it's like for me. And we came to the conclusion last weekend, this is what it cost God to make you and I flawless. It cost Him everything. And so Romans 8.32, Paul can really confidently say, God didn't spare anything for you. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all. God became the curse to make you flawless. And that's the enormity of the weight of Good Friday. It didn't feel like Good Friday to me today. 
And I typically look for a dreary, dark, rainy day to be Good Friday. But it was brilliant, warm sunshine. And all of a sudden I realized it was three o'clock and I habitually every year on Good Friday try and just stop at three o'clock and think about what was going on in that moment 2,000 years ago at three o'clock in the afternoon when he was crying out. But it didn't feel like that today. It wasn't dreary. It was bright and it was sunny. And yet I put myself in that place where I have to remember he came to take care of a plague that was bigger than COVID. He came to take care of the greatest plague that's ever infected this earth. He came to take care of sin to the degree that he would suffer a death like no one has ever suffered. And as believers, we understand it was God's intentional action, the predetermined plan, and it was very strategic. And Acts 2.23 says, he was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God to suffer a death that no one ever faced. No one ever died like Jesus died. So this day right now is a dichotomy. It's, it's this sense of joy and this sense of discomfort. And it bears the fingerprints of every single one of us. Our hand is all over the weapon. Jesus truly was delivered over by Pilate and by the high priest and by the Jews, and he was delivered over by Judas, but he was delivered over by you and I too. Our fingerprints are on the weapon. Romans 3.23, we've all sinned. We've all fall short of the glory of God. So in the midst of our most horrible work of putting the God-man on the cross, God's doing his greatest work, getting ready to make you and I flawless because of the finished work of Jesus. One prophecy stands out to me before we take communion. I want you to see this. Look with me on the screen at Psalm 1610. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. That's hell. David writes this hundreds of years earlier about Jesus. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And it's describing for you and I the confidence that Jesus had in God the Father as he looked into the abyss of hell. And so he goes into the garden with all of this on his mind. Luke says he's praying in absolute agony. He uses the word agony. It is so important for you and I to grasp these images of what's going on for Jesus, to understand what it took to make us flawless. So here's one last image for you to carry with you to the communion table in just a moment. This past weekend, we celebrated Palm Sunday, and we in America and in the West call it Palm Sunday. But if you grew up in a Jewish household, especially if you lived in the first century, what you experienced last Sunday, they would have called Lamb Selection Day. And on Lamb Selection Day, everyone, prior to the destruction of the temple, as a family, would go someplace and select out of their livestock or out of one that they could buy from a farmer, a lamb to represent the family. And God said very specifically, you've got to choose a lamb that's going to come into your home, and that lamb is going to be with you for four days. Look with me on the screen at this. Two different verses, Exodus 12.3 and Exodus 12.6. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, 
Each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Now, that, that sounds great. You love lambs? You'd love to care for a lamb? You'd love to have it in your house, but would you love to bring it in your house so that you can make it a pet for four days so you can slaughter it? Well, that's what the next verse says. Verse 6, take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. That's right now. That's what's going on 2,000 years ago at this time. So Jesus rides into Jerusalem as the Lamb of God on the donkey, and all of the writers of Scripture call Him the Lamb of God. And on Lamb Selection Day, all the families around Israel are picking out their lamb to represent their family. And on Thursday, they begin the process of slaughtering them at twilight. And that's why Paul uses such familiar language in 1 Corinthians because he's a Jew and he grew up in Jewish households. Look with me on the screen at this. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. For Christ is the Jewish man speaking. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. We'll finish that verse in just a moment. Here's another one. Peter did the same thing. Peter grew up in a Jewish household. He said it this way, 1 Peter 1:19. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot. Here's a remarkable thing. Jewish historians tell us that for a 20-year window of time, and nobody can explain it and nobody understands why, for a 20-year period of time around the life of Jesus, the lambs that were selected to come into Jerusalem during this period of time could only come and be certified if they came from Bethlehem. Who planned that detail? God. The symbology is overwhelming. So only the lambs who came from Bethlehem could enter Jerusalem. They enter Jerusalem through the sheep gate. And specifically, only those lambs could be used as a sacrifice the year that Jesus was sacrificed. And another image of Jesus during this period of time is at his trial. When Isaiah borrows the exact same image of a lamb, and he says, as a a sheep before its shears are silent. Look at the, on the screen at this one. It comes from an Old Testament picture, and here's the New Testament image of it. Matthew 27, 12. While he was being accused by the chief priest and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah 53, and I challenge you to read that tonight if you've never read Isaiah 53 before. Jews cannot explain to you what Isaiah 53 even represents. Many of the synagogues won't touch it. They won't even go there to look at it. Isaiah 53 is the picture of Jesus on the cross. Isaiah 52 also to some degree. But Isaiah 53 is where that prophecy came from, that he would not utter a word as a lamb before his shears is silent, so he did not utter a word. Even though his suffering would be excruciatingly physical, Isaiah 52 says this about Jesus' appearance, verse 14. So his appearance was marred more than any man in his form more than the sons of men. Leaning into some Jewish understanding of this period of time, I'm going to lean into a friend of mine, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum. 
Arnold, a Jewish scholar, a theologian who became a believer in Jesus Christ. This is what he captured about Jesus at that moment in time. You see this on the screen is this quote. His body was so badly disfigured that he no longer resembled a man. In the sufferings of Jesus, this would have happened at his scourging. The 40 lashes were given with a multi-strand whip, each strand having a nail or a piece of glass attached to it. These literally lifted the flesh. That's our lamb. This is the picture. So hear this component, church. When you can call legions of angels to put a stop to it and end the whole thing, but you allow yourself to be chained and tortured and you hold your tongue, how do you understand his desire to make you flawless? I told you, I feel unqualified. And I feel like I don't measure up to being able to even comment about these things that Jesus went through. Because you and I, we simply find ourselves in the aftermath of all of this. We're in the aftermath of what he went through to make us flawless. And we remember this death right now because it brought us life. And we've been blessed with this incredible way to remember you're about to pick up the elements, and I hope you're going to pick them up in a way that you've never thought of before. I mentioned in the very beginning that no one was in here last year. It was just a cavern. But I shared an image with you at that time, and I, I hope it may be imprinted with you, but I'm guessing for most people it didn't because we're all very concerned about COVID, and I bet the imagery didn't stay with us very long. Let me put this verse for you on the screen. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, we started with this one. For Christ our Passover has also been sacrificed, therefore let us celebrate the feast. This is a memory that you're about to go through now. You're going to be imprinted with something that you're about to experience. Here's Jesus' own words, Luke twenty two nineteen. 19. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Bear with me as I pull this out. You can buy this yourself. It's in the international food section at any grocery store. Every Jewish synagogue uses these at Passover. We use these here at Trinity. Well, not during COVID. You've got a two-cup system tonight, and there'll be a little piece of bread in the bottom of the cup and the juice, so you'll pick up two cups in just a minute. But stay with me on this. This piece of bread, this matzah, that's unleavened, you can see how thin it is, has no leavening in it whatsoever. It also has holes through it, and you can see the stripes on it. Let me explain this to you. Dr. Fruchtenbaum, my Jewish friend, told me that there's some unique history to this particular bread that's used in these particular settings. It not only had to be unleavened, it had to be flat because leavening, when you have it in your bread, it causes your bread to puff up. And so it couldn't be puffed up because leavening in the Bible represents sin. So it had to be flat. And this is what was used way before Jesus, hundreds of years before Jesus for Passover, ever since the time of Moses. 
unleavened, meaning no sin in it, because Jesus knew no sin. He knew no sin whatsoever. But it also had to be striped, and Arnold said that no one can explain this. Going back to the most ancient history books, no one knows how in the world stripes began appearing. And it was way before Jesus that the stripes began appearing on the unleavened bread. But what they do know is how the holes got there. Because out of fear that the bread would puff up and it would become big, the women of the households, when they made this the night before Passover, they began piercing the bread, stabbing it in order to keep it from puffing up. Anybody here right in front have a flash or a cell phone with them? Just bear with me a second. Can you turn your flashlight on on your cell phone? Take your time. We're all friends here. Okay. You see the holes? All the unleavened bread in the world that's used at every Jewish Passover all has the exact same component to it. So we pick up something very ancient that the disciples picked up. It wasn't a normal piece of bread. It had to be Passover bread that they would be used. It had to be pierced, and if the holes were missing, it could not be used. If the stripes were missing, it could not be used. That Jesus was striped by a Roman whip. Look with me on the screen again, Isaiah 53. Here's what the world can't explain. How could this have been written 800 years in advance? It says this, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. He was pierced through at the crucifixion. And it was carried out with nails and with a spear. And here comes the last part. It's the cup. Let me put this on the screen for you again. Luke 22, Jesus, verse 20, and in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Some of you grew up in Jewish homes. Some of you understand the Passover Seder. You could teach it way better than I could. But here's what's remarkable about the Passover Seder. It has four cups. What you're picking up tonight is what is symbolically represented by the third cup. The first cup specifically was the cup of sanctification in which God said to the children of Israel when they were escaping captivity, I will bring you out. And the second cup was the cup of plagues and it was representing God's deliverance. I will deliver you, I will free you. And the third cup is the cup of redemption. And that's the one Jesus held up. I will redeem you. So when it says he held up the cup, He's holding up the cup of redemption in that dinner. And then there's the fourth cup, which was always used at the end of the meal, which was called the cup of praise. Typically, they sang a hymn after that. And we're told in the New Testament, they went out after that. When you come to the tables in just a moment, pick up the cup, knowing the bread is underneath it in a second cup. Take the elements back to your seat. And take that time to examine yourself, because that's what Scripture says to do. Examine yourself and contemplate all the things that you just learned. Use the tables here in the front. Use the tables in the back. Pick it up. Take it back with you. 
And I'm going to allow you this time right now to examine yourself and ponder all the symbolism that God gave you so that you would not forget what he did. I understand why Paul would have written that it's necessary to examine yourself. Having grown up in the Jewish world, he certainly understood what it meant to be sacrificed. And you would never want to take something like this lightly. You take it with the full understanding of what Jesus did. So church, I invite you to stand with me if you're able to do that. If you're not physically able, I certainly understand that. But I'm going to ask you to hold the bread in your hand. And like Jesus, we're told that he held it up and he said, this represents my body, which is broken for you. In the same meal, he held up a cup. We believe it to be the third cup, the cup of redemption. And he said, this will represent my blood, which is shed for you. Just look with me on the screen. Look at this verse. We're told this happened on Friday. Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God, nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put to death. I'm so glad it doesn't end there. Jim, praise the Lord. Easter's coming, right? Praise the Lord. It doesn't stop there. One of the foremost things I think that's ever been written in all of Scripture was written by an eyewitness who got to hear personally Jesus say this. The eyewitness was John. Look with me on the screen, John eleven twenty five. 25. John heard him say, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. Amen. Amen. Father, I thank you for this group of people who are willing to witness and they are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Individuals who have stood and boldly are willing to say, I belong to you. Thank you for what you've done for us. So God, I pray your blessing over us as we worship you on Easter morning, as we worship you right now with this last song. God, use it. Use it to expand your kingdom and to build joy in our heart as you remind us, as you've imprinted us with the reality of what you did for us. Thank you, God, for this reminder. We praise you in the name of the one who gave everything to make us flawless, the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said. Amen. Amen.